to the teeth of a lion, and he has cheek teeth of a great lion, which can chew bones even, like a hyena. He has laid my vine waste. So this is a destruction of Israel, a destruction of God's people, if you will. The depiction is not of the army of God's people. This is a depiction of an army coming against God's people who cannot be stopped. That which the palmer worm leaves, the locust eats, uh, the enemy comes with big teeth. Uh, he says, they barked my fig tree and made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches are made white, all the bark gone. So stripping the trees of Israel even. And he says, lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth because her, the husband of her youth has been killed. This is how dire it is. Who has greater sorrow and grief than a young lady who's just had her intended killed? That's how bad it, this grief is going to be. Uh, verse 10, the field is wasted, the land mourns, uh, drought. Wheat and the barley harvest is gone, vines dried up. And then he says that they were to gird themselves in verse 13. The priests, the ministers of the altar, put on sackcloth. Doesn't sound too joyous to me. Uh, not like that. the tempo of that song as it, as it is written. He says, call for a fast in 14, a solemn assembly. Get the leaders together. Then the day of the Lord is at hand in verse 15. Scary times. Food cut off. And the joy and the gladness is cut off from the house of God. So this is dire for anyone who is a member of the house of Israel. The flocks of sheep are desolate, verse 18. Flames burn the trees of the field, 19. So here's a, an alarm in chapter 2, which is where Dwight begins that hymnal. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm. So the trumpet was to be sounded here because war and destruction were coming. So it's not a trumpet of gathering for joy. It's a trumpet of warning of destruction. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Land, what land? The Gentiles? No, this is talking to Israel. For the day of the eternal comes, it's near at hand. So the day of the Lord is going to be a terrible time for whom? For the Israelites, all of them, spread across wherever they are today, not just the Jews, but all Israelites, all twelve tribes. Terrible day of darkness, and there's never been anything like it. Remember how he opened? Did your fathers know about anything like this? No, this is, this is terrible. So a fire devours before them, and a flame behind, and it's like Eden before, and a desolate wilderness behind. So this is utter destruction. It's not God's people victorious uh, as, as God's army. This is the armies of the north. This is the armies of Satan. This is, this is something that can't be stopped because God has decreed destruction on Israel. That's why he calls for a fast. And he went on down how he climbed like mighty men and, and so on. I think I've... I actually thought for many years that uh, this could be robots. And they are introducing robots right now into the military. It's being done as we sit and speak today. 
which they're programmed to destroy certain people. And these will be dis- programmed to destroy Israelites. <laughs> and nothing can stop them. You can shoot them and it has no effect because of the way robots are being built today. It's like anything else man has ever made. It could have a very good positive use, but it's always turned to evil. Uh, I mean, what hasn't been? So, they won't thrust one another. Everyone will walk in his path, verse 8. And uh, when they shall fall on the sword, they shall not be wounded. See, if there's a human and he gets hit with a sword, he's stopped right there. But a robot, no, he just keeps going. He's made out of steel or whatever, plasticized, whatever they use. Uh, Yeah, it's God's army, verse 11. This is the army he sent, and he even calls uh, the northern army his army because he's using it to punish Israel. So, yeah, it's God's army, but it's not God's chosen, faithful, true people. That's the point. So he says to Israel, turn to God with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. So this isn't, this isn't a victory march by God's people by any means. Time to rend your heart and not your garments and turn to God and hope you'll have mercy. So in verse eight, 15, he, he reemphasizes verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, call a fast and a solemn assembly, and weep before the altar and turn to God. So then it says that God will ultimately turn it to blessing as you keep on reading. I don't want to spend the whole day on the book of Joel, but I think when we sing that song, we need to be aware of who it's talking about and not be misled by the joyous beat <laughs> that is there. Because it's a, it's a, it's a prophecy, excuse me, a prophecy of some very dire times that are coming. Now, let's tie that together with where I'm going today. Looking at a world out there, and I don't want to talk much about the negative side of things. We have an eight-day period of time here that I want to focus on uh, that which is good and that which is coming, uh, which will be good for the world. But even as we sit here today, we have to realize how desperately This world needs the kingdom of God. And yet, it is a world that does not want the kingdom of God. It wants any other solution. A satanic kingdom, a new world order kingdom, uh, a destruction of over 90% of the population of the earth so that it can be an elitist kingdom of those who are at the top of the food chain served by those peasants who remain. That's the goal and the purpose of people who are in positions of rulership today. So here we come to picture a peaceful time, and yet look at what's been happening recently. Terrible hurricanes. Uh, have Some of you are from the Houston area, and you've seen a, an awful lot of destruction of property, not too much death, but an awful lot of destruction of, profits, of uh, property around, which has a tremendous economic effect. A lot of businesses will go out of business because of loss of revenues. Uh, a lot of people will go broke and lose their houses because they, their jobs aren't there anymore. 
and on and on it goes. Mortgage companies will suffer and insurance companies may go under uh, because they can't handle the payouts from Houston and from Florida and even other places, Georgia. And even as I say that, there's a tropical storm in the Gulf of Mexico right now that they predict by the end of today or tomorrow will be a hurricane, and they say it's headed between New Orleans and the Florida Panhandle, uh, where some people, as splinters of the Church of God, hold feasts of tabernacles <laughs> uh, and are there today. And that hurricane probably will hit Sunday, is what they're projecting in that area. So, one after another comes along. Then we have earthquakes that are coming. Volcanic eruptions around the Ring of Fire, and a terrible earthquake in Mexico. And where's next? Where's next? Matthew 24 says, as the day of the Lord comes near, as we just read about in Joel, Earthquakes in different places, and all kinds of turmoil, wars and rumors of wars. And if natural disasters aren't enough for you, tune in North Dakota and... North Dakota, North Korea. Uh, That's an old brain that does things like that. Uh, North Korea and Iran and various other troubled spots around the world. It's just getting worse and worse wherever you look. And then there's political chaos. In this country, where we're getting a great uh, civil divide between the Democrats and the Republicans and those who are literally of the Communist Party who are on the Antifa or Antifa side. I don't know how they pronounce that because I don't watch the news. I just read it on the Internet. So how do they pronounce that on the news? Antifa or Antifa? Huh? No, not Antithesis. The the political party. The the ones that are anti-Nazis. Antifascists. Anyway, they're communists, and they say that the Trump administration and the Republicans are fascists. And we're all Americans, but that's the way this thing is dividing up. And the bottom line is that they want all white people, all white males particularly, killed. Well, that's prophetic. Because God says the whole Gentile world is going to come against Israel here in the end time. So the object of the world is to kill all white people. Maybe you better get some dye out. No, dye is what they're trying to do to you. That's spelled differently. But here we go. We're in a world that is fast coming apart and is bent upon destroying itself. And Christ says if he didn't cut the time short, there would no flesh be saved alive. Everybody dead. So that's where it's headed. And it's, it's mounting one after another. Who is behind what just happened in Las Vegas? It's becoming very, very clear as they talk to military people and so on that that one fat, out-of-shape, little 64-year-old man could not possibly have shot that many shots that fast and killed and wounded that many people that fast. And there are videos showing up that people took that show fire coming from the fourth floor, not just the 32nd floor. 32nd degree masonry is pretty up high up there, isn't it? They choose these things on purpose. And uh, 
that had to be full automatic machine gun fire to do as much as it did. And that was 400 yards away. Uh, that's the outer range for most people to shoot and hit anything, including barns almost. And those people began to separate and scatter pretty fast. Now, I've shot into flocks of ducks and geese. I've shot into flocks of antelope, where it looked like it was a solid wall of antelope. And there's a term among hunters that's called flock shooting. If I just aim at the flock, I'll hit something. Because the flock is so thick and so close together. No. Flock shooting does not work. It's a derisive term. You have to aim at something, one animal or one bird, and lead it properly or you won't hit nothing. That flock may look like it's close together, but there's a lot more space in between them than you can imagine, and bullets are small. And they hit the open spaces if you flock shoot far more than they do if you aim at one animal. And there was no time for that. And as they scattered, the space between got bigger and bigger. I mean, on and on it goes. You can read it on the Internet. Uh, somebody even said that one man shooting that many people from that distance at that angle and on and on and on uh, is about as impossible to believe as three buildings falling down in their own footprint, referring to 911, of course, which did not happen at all from airplanes flying into it. It's ridiculous. Anyway, on and on it goes, and, it, it, you know, that's political chaos. Kill the white men, we'll attack them. And we are so politically correct that we can't kill animals and eat them, but we can, we can murder millions and millions of babies, and well, that's okay. You can kill human babies, just don't kill an animal, or PETA will hang you by the neck. This place is terrible. So let's not focus there, but let's understand as we come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, that Joel 2 is on its way. And it won't be long until it gets here, and these things are escalating as it goes. And the Gentile world and the times of the Gentiles are coming during the tribulation, in which they will try to kill every Israelite that walks the face of the earth. And they don't even know that anybody but Jews, most of them, don't even know that they aren't the only Israelites around. How many of them understand where the twelve nations of Israel are? Almost no, almost no one. But somehow they hate Israelites and will try to kill us all. So you had better have protection from God somehow, some way. People say, well, let's send aid to Houston. Let's send aid to Florida and to Puerto Rico and to Mexico. It won't help. It won't help. God has decreed the total destruction is coming. And you can't stop it. I mean, you might have a feeling for somebody, I want to help. But have you read about what happens to uh, Red Cross and what are some of the big ones? Uh, donations? Uh, I, Salvation Army, UNICEF, I was trying to think of another one, a big one that doesn't come to mind, but all those big organizations. It's well known, if you do any reading at all, that 80 to 90 percent of everything that is donated is used up in administrative costs. 
salaries of people they employ, and so on and so forth. And only about 10% ultimately get to the people for which you intended it when you wrote that check. So what good did that do? Well, it helped the people that work for Red Cross. That's who it helped, especially the CEOs, the top leaders. They get lots and lots of money. So it's futile. And you look at those disasters and say, what's next? Is New Orleans or Mobile, Pensacola? Got one brewing right now. Where's the next war going to break out? Where is the next false flag uh, disaster like Las Vegas occurred going to happen? Or like 911, which was also government-sponsored and helped uh, all the way through. People, There are people who don't believe that, but it's a fact. Nothing adds up. Nobody yet has seen a plane part that hit the Pentagon. It was a missile. It wasn't a plane. There's no tail there. There's no wings there. There's no nothing there that indicates an airplane ever hit it. And I saw the footage right after it happened. No plane parts. How do you run an airplane into a building of solid concrete and not have a few parts laying around? It's ridiculous. And on and on it goes. Because Satan is the god of this world. And he is bent on destroying humankind and has been ever since Adam and Eve were created. And God is going to give him latitude to destroy almost all mankind before Christ returns. And it is reaching a time now where it is crescendoing and will get worse and worse very, very rapidly. It's one thing right after another now. That's what the scriptures say. So there are no solutions. Hillary did not want to save this country, and Trump, if he wants to, cannot. There's too many pressures there. Even if a man wanted to do it, it can't be done. A, God has decreed that it's going to be destroyed, and the time has come that that must be done. So no man can stand against the prophecies of God. It's just impossible. And some of us would like to see it. I'll I'll flip over right quick to Jeremiah 51. Let's read a couple verses there. Jeremiah 51. (laughs) This is about the great Babylon, uh, which is the United States today. The hammer of the whole earth, as this context shows. Jeremiah 51, uh, and beginning in verse... uh, Six, flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. So he says, this nation is going to be destroyed. Get out. Micah 4 tells us to go to the wilderness to get away from the destruction that's coming. Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the eternal's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. He says here he's going to send the northern army to do this. And that's what Joel 2 is talking about. Same thing. Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. They're gone crazy, they're nuts, because of our influence. Babylon is suddenly fallen to destroyed. Howl for her, take balm for her pain. If so, be she may be healed. So he's covering here the emotions that some of you and I have. Is We love our country that we grew up in. 
we don't want to see our country destroyed. So he's talking to us, the inhabitants. Not the ones that are doing the destroying, but to the ones of us who are here. If so, she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Now, that's what I just said. Nobody can make America great again until America is destroyed and Christ makes it great again. That's its only hope. She's not healed. Forsake her and let us go everyone into his own country. So far, it's been everybody wants to come to land of opportunity to the American dream. We've had people flocking in here by the millions now for decades, and it's increased a lot the last decade. But pretty soon, enough trouble and chaos, both natural and political, are going to be coming into this country so fast and so furious that everybody's going to say, I'm headed back for Nicaragua, Nicaragua or Guatemala or wherever they came from. That's what it says right here. Let's go to our own country. This isn't the American dream. This is a nightmare. For her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. The Eternal has brought forth our righteousness. So he includes words here about his people, his true people, who are learning righteousness. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Eternal, our God. Now, that's going to become a very important part of the theme of this feast, is all this destruction is coming on our land, and we need to go to Zion and do the work of God. Because that's the only safe place, and the only thing that is going to count and be important, because the destruction of Joel 2 and Jeremiah 50 and 51, and all the other prophecies, I'm getting away from Ezekiel because it's all dire, bad, terrible news about this country and all Israel. And I don't want to be going through that during the Feast of Tabernacles. The symbolism is wrong. Let's be happy and joyous that there is an answer. And you see it right there in verse 10. Is that we better get God's work done because Satan's work is being perpetrated on the whole world. And mark God's words, not my words, mark God's words. It's going to get worse and worse and very rapidly. And you've already been seeing that. Let's go then to Leviticus 23. We often do this at the beginning of some of God's feast days, but I want to uh, go through it a little bit and get our perspective as we go into the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, about God's Sabbaths and holy days and their meaning. And I also want to cover what is history here in this chapter and what is prophecy, because there is a definite line of demarcation between the two, uh, at least in terms of the world today as we know it. So he says, These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocation. Even these are my feasts. Uh, verse 2 of Leviticus 23. And the first one he proclaims as a holy convocation or a uh, commanded assembly is the Sabbath. Six days shall you work or shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation, a commanded assembly. Think twice before you skip 
Sabbath services to do something else. I mean, there are times when we might be uh, out away from civilization in the mountains or whatever for a week or two on vacation or hunting trip or whatever. Uh, at least we could try to do our best at the cell service to tune in if we can't physically be there. But uh, by and large, and as a general rule, it is a commanded, not an optional convocation. We're supposed to be there. And Paul even said it in the book of Hebrews in a little different way. He says, be there, and so much the more as you see the day draw near when all these prophecies are going to come to pass. And if you can't see some of those things in Matthew 24, and these prophecies beginning to come to pass now, you're not using more than two brain cells. Because it's happening all around us, and it is happening happening at a quickening pace. So we're to be together. Uh, another one I might throw in there is uh, the end of the book of Malachi, where he says that the people of God speak to each other and speak a great deal about God. And he will remember them when he makes his jewels, puts his these things together, makes the crowns. So we are to be together. Not only we're to be together, we're supposed to get along together. Well, that's a whole different matter. We'll we'll approach that some other time. <laughs> anyway, the weekly Sabbath is mentioned first as one of God's holy days. Uh, and verse 4 then, These are the feasts of the eternal, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. So now we're at the season of the Feast of Tabernacles. And this must be proclaimed today. But he starts at the, in the beginning, uh, the first one of the year, because there's a sequence that has a pattern to it of the plan of God. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. Uh, on the fifteenth day of the same month is a feast of unleavened bread. To the eternal seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Total of seven. Now, the reason it says the 15th there is that the 14th is the day of the Lord. His day, Passover day, has everything to do with Him, with deity, with God. Let's understand the emphasis here. Christ is over all, except the Father, of course. And virtually every important event that occurred, occurred on the 14th. Even back in Mitzrayim or Egypt, and later uh, at Christ's keeping of the Passover at the beginning of the 14th, and then he was taken in the middle of the night, just like uh, the firstborn were taken uh, in the middle of the night back in Exodus 12. And then he was tortured and killed on the 14th. So everything important makes that a feast day, a holy convocation, and a memorial, even as Exodus 12 clearly says, on the 14th. So all the important events occurred on the 14th. That's the first day of unleavened bread, because that's the day that it made it possible for sin. What is the key factor for sin being put out? Christ's part. The forgiveness of past sin. Present sin. Even ultimately future sin, since it is a day-to-day continuing sacrifice. 
So his was the first day and the most important day. Then you have six more days following that. What is the number six? It's the day of man, or the number of man. So Christ did the most important work on the first day, the 14th. He died so that sin could be forgiven. Then we have six days, starting on the 15th, in which we do our part to put sin out of our lives, which Paul emphasizes in 1 Corinthians 5, to put out the leaven of sin. So his part is the greatest part, and that all happened on the first day. Man's doing his part to continue to put sin out. So Passover, death of Christ, coming of the Holy Spirit are all wrapped up with him, the Spirit to help us overcome sin the rest of those days. That's the meaning and the symbolism there, and I did not emphasize that, I don't think, even in the first write-up on this. But uh, that is very important, and it really actually gives you an explanation of Leviticus 23 and verse 4. Uh, four uh, no, uh, verse 6, the 15th day. Because that's the only verse that people have to refute the first day Passover being a holy day. Uh, but properly explained, uh, it isn't a problem. And they even throw Numbers and Deuteronomy out, which say that you kill the lamb on the first of the seven days. So they just say, well, you have to throw that out. We'll take that out of the Bible. Uh, Revelation 22 talks about that, that you can get rid of parts of the Bible that you don't like, doesn't it? Don't take from or add to. But then when I gave this Passover dissertation, one of the leading guys that writes papers by the ton uh, said, well, you just can't go by Luke. You have to throw Luke's story out because he wasn't an eyewitness. Well, God put it in the Bible. Are you going to throw it out just because it doesn't agree with your theory? How long do you throw out another book and another book? And pretty soon it's a Protestant Bible. It's New Testament Psalms and Proverbs missing Luke, and then you throw out the book of Revelation and, you know, and on and on until there's nothing left. Once you start it, where do you stop it? Anyway, <clears throat> Christ did the heavy lifting on the first day. And we're supposed to continue then for another six days with the idea of putting sin out of our lives because we are to eventually to be perfectly sinless. And I covered some of that on the Day of Atonement. Uh, that we cannot become totally sinless and perfect until our change come. 1 Corinthians 15. When you're transformed and you no longer have human nature, but you have spirit nature. Human nature is always down-pulling. It's always, it tends to be negative and sinful and against God, a contrast to God. Spirit nature, the nature of God, is always upward. Positive, building up, not tearing down, not uh, thinking evil or accusing of evil, but accusing of good. Paul tells us in Philippians to think on those things that are uplifting and good and right that lead toward a positive approach, because that's God's approach. 
contrast Galatians 6 and the works of the flesh with the fruits of the Spirit. One pulls us down, the other brings us up. Which do you want to be? So we have to work on that. That's what those other six days of unleavened bread are about. (coughs) Then we go on down to 50 days later, the Feast of Pentecost from the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. And Pentecost pictures, among other things, the Feast of the First Fruits. (coughs) We are the First Fruits. The early New Testament church was part of the First Fruits. We're a part of the first fruits. First fruits mean those who will be in the first resurrection. Uh, Revelation 7 and 14 mention the 144,000, and it clearly shows that these are the first fruits. The 144,000 are the first fruits. No more, no less. 144,000. That's all it will be in the first resurrection. So it's the feast of first fruits, and it's about those called out of God, converted now, and having their opportunity in this age. So it's a feast about us. It also pictures the engagement of Christ to his bride. So it's still, uh, we're, we're, we're not talking prophecy yet, are we? Christ came. Christ died. Christ was offered for us. That's history. It's still current in that we continue to look to his uh, sacrifice for forgiveness of our continuing sins, and we also continue to try to put sin out of our lives every day, not just those six, but he's showing us in those six that that's what should be done. That doesn't mean as soon as the days of unleavened bread are over, you can go out uh, to your outside refrigerator and bring your uh, old bread back in and eat it. Uh, you're not to continue with your sins thereafter. You're to get rid of that leavening and not bring it back. Destroy it. Get it off your property. I've actually heard of people who've gone and gotten it after those. Oh, okay, I can have it now. No. Sin, you remove, and you don't go back to it. That's the symbolism. So, uh, the engagement is done, isn't it? For most of us, God has called many in this end time. He's not calling hardly any anymore. Very rare he calls anybody anymore. You can go through all the splinters and they talk about how much they're progressing. No, they're not. They're in the front door and out the back door. Just like here. In the front door and out the back door. It's that way throughout the church. They, they move from one group to another group to another group. But there aren't new ones being converted except very rarely. A few would be called, he said, at midnight. Okay, a few, but not very many. And that's that's exactly what's happening today. So, the engagement is done. We're engaged here to Christ. Ready to be, well, not ready to be. We're preparing ourselves and getting ready to be married. Because from Pentecost until the next of God's holy days is a long, hot summer. Or they sometimes call it the dog days of summer. Uh, You don't feel like doing anything because it's too hot and the sun's too bright. And uh, the lazy, crazy, hazy days of summer, as one song went back in the 50s, I think. 
because it's a time that people don't do as much in some respects. So Christ left, didn't he? He said that he would leave and he'd go prepare a place and then he would come back. So it's like you getting engaged to marry and then your bridegroom leaving town. I'll see you in a few months. Well, thanks a lot. I want to be with you all the time. You know, uh, we're getting married. You're supposed to be here. Well, sorry, I got to I got to take this long trip. And then I what Christ said. So the bridegroom's like somebody going on a long trip, or like the husbandman, or whatever it was, or several of those going away. So you got to make it on your own for a while at least without his physical presence. His spirit would still be there to guide, to lead, to help. And that's also part of the symbolism of Pentecost, is his Holy Spirit coming there in Acts 2 to uh, to conceive us of the Holy Spirit so that we might then grow in preparation to being the bride. The bride has made herself ready, we read in, in Revelation 19 on atonement. So there's several things there that are very, very important to us that are, have already happened and are occurring. It's not just a prophecy. Most who have been called in this age have already been called. So out of the many called under Herbert Armstrong, few are now being chosen to round out the 144,000. That's where we are. So that's not prophecy. Then we come on down. <clears throat> uh, I've been talking about all of this. Uh, then we come to verse 24. Speak to the children of Israel, saying on the seventh month and the first day of the month, you'll have a Sabbath, a memorial, a blowing of trumpets. Again, a commanded assembly. <clears throat> and we know from other scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, and so on, that the... Uh, Feast of Trumpets pictures the seventh trump when Christ will return to the earth and the resurrection of the dead will occur. Now, there is an order of resurrections. And the order is that the Feast of Trumpets, when Christ returns in glory and glorifies his first fruits, his 144,000, or his bride, Revelation 21, shows that the bride is the 144,000. So he resurrects his bride at the Feast of Trumpets. A blowing of trumpets there, not of alarm, but blowing for his people to gather to meet him in the air. Trumpets always were sounded uh, to gather people for war or for good things. Either way, uh, that's how you called them together, was by a trumpet. Today we have the early warning system on radio. <laughs> uh, this will be more effective, believe me. <clears throat> but there is where we leave the current situation and go to prophecy. We transition after Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, the engagement of the bride, and so on. We transition to something that has not happened to anyone yet. That is, the changing of physical to spirit. Exception of Christ himself, of course, who was the first of the first fruits. So he's been changed back to spirit after having been physical. But for the rest of us, this is all a prophecy. 
is still a prophecy for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, which the Scripture clearly says David is not in the kingdom of God. Uh, and it, Paul said there in Hebrews 11 that none of these ascended except he which came down, and they were in their graves waiting until we're ready. So what's the deal here? You're keeping Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in their grave. Are we not? <laughs> he says they can't be resurrected till our time has come. And we're to pray that he cut these things short uh, in his glory. He even tells us to not let him have any rest until these things happen there in Isaiah. So there's where we transition totally into uh, prophecy. Then the seventh day, month, uh, the tenth day of the seventh month, ten days after trumpets, comes the day of atonement. We're not to eat or drink, we're to fast. Christ told his disciples that they would fast when he was gone, and that they'd quit fasting when he returned. Now, all the fasts of the Bible are going to be turned into feasts of joy. We read those four fasts that we keep now during the year that are mentioned in, in Zechariah 7 and 8. Uh, we keep those fasts because they indicate some terrible times that would occur or had occurred in Israel that the Jews then kept as fasts because of the terrible things that occurred and they wanted Jerusalem rebuilt, they wanted the temple rebuilt, they wanted their leaders to live and not be killed, get Eliah. So he says, we're to keep those fasts in the present age. But right there, I think it's Zechariah 8, where he says that those fasts will be turned into feasts of joy. Won't fast anymore because Jerusalem will be rebuilt, the temple will be rebuilt, our leaders will be resurrected. So why fast anymore? Christ will be with us. No need to fast. The day of atonement is going to be turned into a feast of joy. What is more joyous than the wedding supper? The day of atonement pictures the wedding supper. The marriage of the Lamb. He returns. She rises to meet him in the air. <clears throat> they go to the Father's throne and are married on the sea of glass. Day of atonement. And have the wedding supper. Then they have a year's honeymoon, as Deuteronomy 24 demands. If you marry a wife, you don't work for a year. You cheer her up. You're not going to go be gone for the summer again. You're going to be with her. It says we'll ever be with him after that. Go to Everywhere he goes, we'll go with him. So we go to his throne, and we have the honeymoon. He may cut that year a little short because he says when those seven last plagues are occurring during the honeymoon, that year, that if he didn't intervene, no flesh would be saved alive. So he may cut it a little short right there in order to get back before Satan and man completely destroy every human being on earth. But there, the book of Revelation says, we all come with him and he will be ridden riding on a horse with a sword and his vesture dipped in blood, he's coming to make war against Satan and Satan's army that has already been used in Joel to destroy Israel. Then his vengeance comes on the Gentile nations uh, for having destroyed Israel. And then he comes on down to the Mount of Olives 
and alights there and begins the kingdom of God. So Feast of Trumpets pictures that first coming in glory in which we rise and are changed and go back to get married and stay there a year and then come back with him to rule the earth. It says the Father and the Son are coming with the new Jerusalem there in chapter 21 of Revelation. It says it's 144,000 and she's in her glorious state by then and she's coming down with him to rule the earth. That's where we get to the millennium. See, atonement's still prophecy, too. We haven't married Christ yet. We're just betrothed to Him. But the Feast of Tabernacles is also totally prophetic. That hasn't happened yet. You know, everything up until the Feast of Tabernacles is about you and me. It's all about us. It's not about anybody else. Do we grasp that? Passover's about us. The coming of the Holy Spirit is about us the called out ones. Pentecost is about the engagement of the bride and the coming of the Holy Spirit to give her help to prepare. Feast of Trumpets is about the first fruits, us, and those who preceded us who are part of the 144,000. Day of Atonement is about the bride, the 144,000 marrying Christ. It's all about us. Feast of Tabernacles is about the world. Doesn't have anything to do with us. We will already be glorified by then. We will be returning with Christ the King and His Father to set up the kingdom of God on earth, not for ourselves, but for the rest of the world. Now, I described on purpose some of the things that are going on in the world right now so that we recognize how desperately the kingdom of God is needed on this earth. And there is not a thing we can do about it until the appointed time. We can do all the do-gooder stuff we want. We can even pray for our nation and all Israel, can't we? But doesn't Jeremiah tell us from God, don't even pray for this nation, they won't do any good, they will not repent. So if you're not going to pray for them, I don't see how sending something to Salvation Army is going to help either. It is prophesied it's going to happen. All the do-gooders will totally and utterly fail. So you're just wasting your time and your money and your energy and your emotion if you're trying to do something to help right now because God has decreed that there will be no help. The earth is going to be destroyed with over 90% of its people and polluted so badly that anyone can hardly live on it. And Christ is going to come and restore all things. He and the Father's throne is going to be here on the earth at the original Jerusalem, and the waters will come out from under the throne to the east and to the west and heal the world. Zechariah 14, Revelation 21 combined. That's what's going to happen. So this Feast of Tabernacles isn't about us. Sorry, it's about the world. It's about restoration of peace in the world so that it's like it was before Satan got hold of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's restoring it to that level. So the deserts will bloom as a rose and everything will be beautiful and peaceful. 
So, what's our role in the Feast of Tabernacles? Isaiah thirty twenty one, I think it is. You'll see your teachers. They'll tell you this is the way. Walk you there in it. We'll be there to help the world then. Won't need Salvation Army. Won't need UNICEF. Won't need the, the UN. Won't need any of that. The government of God will be here. And we, as the bride of Christ, Mama, the mother, will take care of the children of the earth. So if you really want to help the world, get converted. Serve God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. If you want to help the world, that's the way to do it. Going to Vegas today and helping people is not going to help them. Because God has destined the destruction will come and will be until he returns. So if you want to help the world, be as much a part of what he is doing as you possibly can. And he has a great work scheduled for those who are candidates to be first fruits here at the end time. And I'm going to spend some time on that during this feast because it's how we can prepare ourselves to help the world. It's how we can do what God wants done as an end-time work so that his kingdom could be ushered in. Now, it's his kingdom, and he and the Father are going to be doing the work, but he has always used human agents. Always. To do anything that he has done on this earth, he has used human agents throughout history. And it is very clear in Scripture he's going to do the same thing again. So we might as well get used to that idea. And he has called you here, <clears throat> among others, to help do that work. He is going to do some things shortly which are going to stir up others to come and help do that work. So it's going to be happening very, very shortly, and we are in on the ground floor. We are here to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in order to prepare ourselves and to typify what is to come. We're here to show for eight days the way the kingdom of God will be when the Father and the Son are here ruling. You're not here just to eat and drink. You are here to eat and drink because the Feast of Tabernacles pictures a time when there will be plenty and prosperity. There will be lots of wine and corn and figs and wheat and barley and grain and everything. There will be everything that anybody could need to have to eat. There will be no poor. There will be no destitute. There will be no starvation. None of those things will be going on. There will be plenty. So this is the only of one of the feasts of God in Leviticus 23 where he specifically commands us in other places here in the old Leviticus and Deuteronomy to come and use our second tithe to purchase whatever our soul might desire. That doesn't include pigs. <clears throat> whatever our soul legally desires. 
as always. So we are to eat more than we normally do. We are to drink more than we normally do. Because it pictures a time of plenty and prosperity. Now that doesn't mean if you're an alcoholic you should make drink more than you normally do. It doesn't mean if you're a glutton the rest of the year you ought to uh, be a super glutton for the feast. Uh, Marlowe made a very good uh, observation oh, some years ago, and I've remembered it. She says, we don't understand the Feast of Tabernacles. We don't get it. South Africa, Kenya, they get it. They barely have anything to eat year long. They're almost starving year long. So when the Feast of Tabernacles comes and they have more to eat in seven or eight days than they normally get in two months, they get it. <laughs> they understand. Feast of Tabernacles is all about having all you can possibly eat and drink. It's a picture of the millennium when the whole world will have that. But Americans have more to eat and drink every day of the year than they really need. Look at us. So having extra at the Feast of Tabernacles is kind of overkill. So let's understand the typology here. Yeah, we eat even, even more and drink even more, let's say, than we normally do. Well, maybe we kind of get the picture from that. But we don't get it the way people who are starving to death get it when they have more at the feast. But that's... That's the meaning, is that this picture is a time in the future when everybody will have all that they could possibly need or want. So, we're here to picture that time, not just physically. If you had a super charitable organization, even more super than the American welfare state, so that everybody on earth could have everything they could possibly want to eat and drink, would it solve the world's problems? No. Fat people are unhappy too. Fat people get divorces too. Fat people abort babies too. So the physical is not the most important. The most important thing for us to get while we're here is the spiritual. Spiritual food, spiritual understanding, spiritual closeness to God. To come to the feast, as Zechariah 14 says, to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. So, eating of Christ's body and drinking of His blood, the spiritual food and drink, is that which we are to imbibe the most because it is a spiritual lack that is the world's biggest problem not a physical food lack. There is both around the world. But by far, the most important is the spiritual lack. So, that means that you and I need to eat well and drink well during the feast to picture the time when the earth will have physically everything it needs. But we had better put even greater effort into having total peace among ourselves, because it pictures a time of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. 
That means we don't let ourselves get offended. That means we don't give offense. We don't get our widow feelings halt. But we act as Christ would act. We live joyously. We live happily. We pick each other up. We encourage each other. We speak of good things and happy things. Because we're talking here for eight days about the kingdom of God. There's no time for negativity. There's no time for hurt feelings. There's no time for war and animosity. This is a time of peace for eight days. So if you're going to fulfill the feast in the way that God intended to fill it, or to observe it, then we need to concentrate on having a spiritual attitude of God, which is contrary to our physical nature, for eight days. Can we grin and bear it for eight days? Can we treat each other with love and respect and kindness and a certain amount of needling? With a good spirit. Because it can be both ways. You can kid one another in a spirit of love and closeness and camaraderie, or you can kid each other with a little needle in there that is a mean spirit and is intended to hurt. And sometimes we disguise that and deceive even ourselves that sometimes when we're needling one another, we're actually being unkind. So sarcasm and humor has its place, but let's be sure that it is through the Spirit of God, because I see things in nature where God's sense of humor is there. And part of the Spirit of God is about joy and laughter and that kind of thing. So we can kid one another, we can tease one another, as long as it's done in a spirit of uplift and not one of putting someone down. That's the mean-spirited side of it. And that's a hard thing to do and to know which is which. Because I think of all the human emotions and all the things we go through, humor is probably the hardest thing there is to properly control. I mean, you can clearly see the difference between anger and goodwill. But in humor, there are so many subtleties that are involved that it's real easy to get off in the wrong ditch. Uh, look at the humor in the world and how evil and nasty and rotten and corrupt and immoral it becomes so very quickly. And you, you've seen how you can have a good conversation going and then it will turn downward. And a lot of times it's done with humor, that the downward thrust occurs. So here is our chance for eight days to try to live with joy and love and kindness and gentleness. And yeah, the camaraderie of a family that kids each other and teases each other. But let's be sure that we have the right spirit and attitude behind it so that we don't hurt, so that we help you know, sometimes somebody kids you about something and you say, yeah, you're right, and you determine I'm going to do better about that. So it can be uplifting, but it can also be destructive. Satan's is destructive, God's is uplifting.
And we need to always keep that in mind uh, because we're here to live at peace. And I hope that no one has a hurt feeling through this whole feast. So let's not take offense and let's not give offense. Let's have our feelings, godly feelings. That's what we're here for, is to picture a time of total and utter peace on earth when God is in control. So there's a challenge. It's not much of a challenge to eat more and drink more. It's a challenge to grow in spirit and attitude and the love of God and peace on earth.